Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this audio sermon. You can find a full archive of sermons on our website, holycommunion.net. This sermon was preached by our priest associate, the Reverend Mark Smith, on the second Sunday of Advent, December 6th, 2020. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Come on, folks. Just last week, Mike implored us to get our priorities straight, be attentive to this special time of Advent, and remain alert for God breaking into our lives. However, homilies and a pandemic notwithstanding, we're already caught up in the frenzy of the season. We're more likely focused on cyber shopping than prayer. We're likely humming Christmas carols rather than the anticipatory hymns of Advent. And yes, Zoom calls are crowding out time for quiet solitude and reflection. So this morning's gospel seems like an incredibly rude, albeit necessary, interruption, yet again summoning us to prayerful anticipation jerking us back from the headlong rush to merriment. Mark challenges us today with the most unlikely of voices and most curious of prophets. Nowhere do we catch a glimpse of a star or still night. We learn nothing of angelic choruses that herald the birth of an innocent child or shepherds gathered in stunned amazement. No kings, no treasures, alas, no swaddling clothes. Rather, what we get is the oppressive dust of Judea. We're brought to a fouled river, and we're introduced to a man who surely appears to fall far short of the splendor of one who would speak for God. Now, stark oh, the setting, it is neither the environment nor the prophet's inelegance that captures our attention. Instead, we're asked to accept that multitudes swarmed to be with a man with rancid clothes, were asked to believe that they wanted to be bathed in the filth of the Jordan River. And were asked to accept that the voice of this prophet is but a foreshadowing of one to come. Nevertheless, they did come, and in substantial numbers. They came to hear this strange man, John, the one who baptizes. No doubt some were the devout of Israel, remembering Isaiah's legacy and foretelling of a Messiah. Others, probably the social and political elite. And still others were simply curious. Nevertheless, for different reasons and with different expectations, they came to hear this strange man. Mark's gospel was written half a century after the events he recorded And much had changed for Israel during that time. War was underway, and Jerusalem was under siege. The people were deeply divided. Some were trying to push the Romans out of their country, while others hoped the Romans would provide peace, security, and stability. Even Rome itself was uneasy with the emperor Nero's death the year before. Four men subsequently claimed to be the emperor, but all were assassinated and Vespasian now occupied the empire's throne. 
So what did all of this mean for first century Israel, as well as for our understanding of this morning's encounter with John the Baptist? Amidst this political confusion, one small sect of Jews refused to side with either the Roman nationalists or the empire of Rome. They were followers of an unheralded rabbi from Nazareth who had been crucified 40 years earlier. Romans thought they were insurrectionists. Faithful Jews thought they were heretics. And skeptics thought Jesus was neither a political king nor the long-promised Messiah. To them, Jesus' disciples were simply gullible fools. Yet his followers claimed that a new order had been born in his death and his resurrection. Others, however, scoffed at being raised from the tomb after a horrendous death on a cross. So it's into this turbulent and uncertain time that Mark announced the good news of Jesus Christ. And dear friends, Mark minces no words. Rather than a recitation of Jesus' family lineage or the story of his birth, Mark begins his narrative with a forceful declaration of who Jesus is and where he fits in the continuing journey of God's people. First, he announces Jesus as the Son of God. Second, he asserts that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of ancient Israel's prophets. And third, he establishes John the Baptist as one more important prophet in this long line of those who foretold the coming of Christ. Following this direct, unequivocal introduction of Jesus, Mark then turns his attention to John. While we might muse over his clothing and diet, key to understanding this second section of this morning's text is the setting of his preaching, the wilderness. John didn't choose the temple in Jerusalem. He didn't select a village square or any other place where people normally gather. Rather, he opted for a place of desolation, a place so devoid of activity that the voice of one speaking for God and of God could be heard without distraction or chatter. It is to this same wilderness that we have been summoned this morning to encounter God and prepare for his coming again in the presence of his Son. To be sure, while our neighborhood has no locusts, <laughs> at least not at this time of the year, and anything resembling a river is several miles away, we know of life in the wilderness. We know a place of desolation. We see it in the faces of those facing down the coronavirus and those exhausted by its toll. We see it in the faces of those grieving the unprecedented loss of life to gun violence and suicide. And we see it in the faces of those who line our streets seeking food, shelter, and simply someone who cares. Whether in scripture or in the narrative of our lives, we are called into the wilderness because of the stark contrasts it offers between lives of abundance and lives of destitution, between lives of comfort and those of pain, between lives filled with hope 
and lives which know only despair. Indeed, whether on the wilderness banks of the Jordan River, or in our own communities, or in our own homes, the contrasts are striking. But what are we to do, you and me? To be sure, we must continue to work tirelessly for economic and social justice. But our efforts began not in the streets or in the halls of government, but as John the Baptist announces, our work begins on our knees in humble repentance. Repentance for the failures of our own lives. Repentance for the failures of the world in which we live and those who claim to lead. And repentance for turning inward rather than turning toward God for our help and salvation. Last week, the first Sunday of our Advent journey, we were encouraged to be awake, to be watchful, to consciously prepare to welcome Christ into our world again. This Sunday, we're reminded that our preparations begin with the humble confession of our sins and the certain hope that our merciful God will hear and heal our penitent hearts. Indeed, our preparation for Christmas is embedded in the repentance and God's forgiveness we shared just moments ago in this service. Our preparation for the celebration of the birth of a Savior also is embedded in the remembrance of the life born for us, crucified for us, and raised for us, the life into which we were baptized. And our Advent preparation is embedded in the bread and wine we share together in making Eucharist, empowering us to engage the wilderness of the world and prepare the way of the Lord. That, dear friends, was John the Baptist's proclamation on the banks of the Jordan 2,000 years ago. Today, let it too be ours. Amen.